Yo, and welcome back to another Tea Time with Sam. This episode, we've got Sam Modeski, my good mate, all the way from Canada. Hey, what are you doing? I'm trying to film something here. And uh, Benji, my cat, who's making an appearance. But yeah, I'm really excited about this. In about an hour's time, I'm going to meet Sam, um, and we're going to have a good chat about his kiteboarding history, um, when he first saw kiting. He... He learned to kiteboard back in like before 2000, so one of the, the very first kiteboarders. And it's really interesting to compare his story from North America compared to some of my European friends. So yeah, let's get into it. Check it out. Tea time with Sam Modeski. Hey Sam, what up? And welcome to this next episode of, of Tea Time with Sam Light. How's it going, mate? Yeah, doing good, doing good. We're... Uh... We're in uh, social physical distancing here in Canada, so not the full lockdown like the UK, but uh, yeah, we're, we're staying busy. You still getting any sessions on the water? Uh, we haven't had wind the past few days, but um, I was getting out uh, about a week or two ago when we had wind here, which was awesome, but it's a bit of a touchy subject. We're actually, we are allowed to go kiting, but uh, there's a lot of... I guess shaming going on if you're getting out on the water because you're putting yourself and maybe others at risk. So uh, yeah, I get it. I just don't post about it. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah, dude. the shaming is gnarly in the UK too. Like so bad that nobody is kiting. Um, so I'm not even going to say whether I have or not because I'm going to get in trouble <laughs> if <laughs> if I'm honest. <laughs> But um, yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm more dangerous on a bike than I am kiting. But I also get that it kind of has to be like one rule for everybody. Because if somebody sees me out there, they're like, oh, why is he out there? I want to go out there. So I kind of get it. Um, it is a tricky situation. But let's get back into the good questions. I want to dive deep, Sam. I want to know when the first time you saw somebody kiting. Do you remember that? The first time, to be completely honest, I don't think I saw somebody kiting before I started kiting myself, which is <laughs> kind of cool. crazy. My, my, uh, I started kiting uh, with my dad in Sobble Beach on Lake Huron um, in Canada. I was windsurfing a little bit. My next door neighbor, um, this like kid's rig. So I started windsurfing really young, like six or seven. And then my dad brought home a windsurfing magazine and there was an article in it about kiteboarding, kiteboarding, the sister sport to windsurfing. And it was like photos of like Robbie and all the guys on Maui. And then after that, my dad ordered some foil kites from uh, Concept Air. And then he ordered uh, the first Whippica Classic 8.5, which we still have to this day. Um, <laughs> and that was in 1998. 98 no way 98 yeah dude that's super early like that's at the conception almost yeah yeah it was really early and um yeah i, I mean everything to launching the kite we had no idea how to launch the kite how to keep the kite on the beach i remember my dad he would put a stake in the ground and it was just two-line kite, so you'd have the, the hard line or the hard kite fully powered up downwind on its leading edge, and he would set kayaks across the lines to prevent the kite from rolling and launching because <laughs> we didn't know how to, how to dome or turtle the kite on the beach. 
and that was i mean we like really we learned ourselves and it was rough like getting dragged down the beach and it was kind of scary it was definitely scary. how old were you <laughs> i was eight years old damn so and you were eight when you were like doing your first water starts i would have been yeah i started uh my first water starts i still have photos of it was on um a four line it was a traction uh traction x concept there foil kite and it was on two handles so you had the brakes just to bring the kite down and then you had your steering lines on the top and between the top two bits of the handle you had a piece of rope and i would hook into my little decline speed seed and that was how i'd get kiting but i learned a lot uh a lot of my early days of kiting was on snow which was super easy to learn because you don't have to worry about the buoyancy so in the winter here in Canada, the lakes freeze over and I go out on skis or a snowboard with the small foil kites. And, um, and that's where I learned a lot of my riding. It probably wasn't until I would say 2001 that I could actually stay upwind on the water. Um, but so yeah, you'd snow kite board, on, on the lakes that you would, that you would kite, uh, kite surf on normally. Yeah. Yeah, so there's in the winter, you kind of have like an awkward shoulder season where it's a little too cold to kite on the water, but the lakes haven't frozen over fully yet. So you didn't get the kite kind of spring and fall sometimes. But then, uh, you know, peak winter and peak summer, you're either on, on the water on your board or on, uh, on the snow on your skis or board. Oh, nice. And is that where you, you guys have your like summer house thing? Yeah, yeah, our cottage is um is on Lake Huron, which it's a it's a massive lake. It looks like an ocean if you're standing on the shore because you can't see the other side. It's ninety, roughly ninety six miles to the other side, so it's it's a big body of water, one of the largest uh, bodies of fresh water in the world. Wow! And how's the, how's the kite scene there now? Like, has it expanded and? It's definitely, it's definitely growing. I remember in the early days of kiting, you could, you know, you're driving around different spots to find the wind and you'd always see, you know, the usual characters, right? Nowadays, when I, when I go kiting, you know, you'll see so many people that you've never seen before. And uh, it's cool to see that kiting's growing that much. I'm sure it's the same in the UK. Um, you see so many younger kids coming up or just new people to the sport that have gotten into it. And it has really, it's really grown, I'd say, in the past, what's it been, 22 years. Yeah. So when did you, like, when did you first kite outside of the lake and start traveling with kiting? Did you go somewhere with your dad or down to the outer banks? So my first, yeah, we went down to the outer banks in 2001. My dad went down there. Yeah, it would have been 2001. He went down to um, Hatteras to, it would have been Kitty Hawk Kites to get uh, certified as an instructor. So he went down uh, and that was through PASA, Professional Air Sports Association. So he went down and, uh, and got certified as an instructor. And my dad was a high school teacher, so he could teach kiteboarding during the summer months. And then he was a high school teacher the rest of the year. So it kind of, the idea was that teaching kiting in the summer would help pay for the gear and any travel that we'd do in the winter. Um, and then we did some family trips to, I think Barbados back in the day and Antigua. I actually met Dre my first time when I would have been, I think 13 years old. Um, he was riding, 
yeah, it would have been a Cabrina CO2 and the underground wave tray. I don't know if you remember <laughs> that board. Yeah. Everybody had That's that true. for a while. I mean, I was kind of after that but, like, when I learned, but yeah. no, I remember that seeing that board. It was cool. Yeah. And it, yeah, I guess for me, my first event was the 2004 Velocity Games. That was like a really big event in, in North America. Um, and I went and competed in the juniors and that's where I, I got my first podium. I took first in that event in the junior division. And that was also the first time I met Aaron. Aaron came over and that was like really when he was, I think that was the first year he won the world tour. He would have been, I think, 15 or 16 at the time. And uh, he came over and it was, I mean, yeah, it was like seeing God all of a sudden. He was doing tightly <laughs> handle passes. Nobody had seen that before. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> so That's it was, cool. uh, where, yeah, Where was, was the wild. Velocity Games that, event held? That was in uh, Corpus Christi, Texas, which uh, there used to be loads of events. I always think back to it. There used to be loads of events in North America all over the place. And then nowadays, really, the only event that we have for the past few years has been the park events um like hood river and hatteras so it's kind of sad yeah. to see but uh yeah there used to be a lot more so there wasn't really was there like canadian nationals and things like that so the first canadian nationals was uh in the ile de medlin a small island off uh the coast of um quebec in canada and that was the first Canadian Nationals, and that was in 2005. And basically, if you won the Canadian Nationals, you got a wild card into the PKRA event that was held there the following week. So I went to that event, and I think I, w I was 15 at the time, and I won the first Nationals. And then I got the wild card into the PKRA and then went and competed in the NAD and just got destroyed. <laughs> uh, the That's level cool, was eh? so high. But it was, it was really cool. And it was also, it was, it was nice to kind of see that riding level um, and then give me kind of motivation to, to go and push further and further. Because it really, in North America, I would say a lot of the world tour, and it still is that way, a lot of the world tour has always been European-based riders for the most part. Um, and a lot of the tour stops have always been in, in, um, in Europe or other places other than North America. I think the only PKRAs that were ever in, in North America, there was one or two in the DR and then one or two in Canada. But there, I don't think there's ever been a PKRA or any world tour stops besides the Park League in the US. Wow, yeah, I'm surprised. I'm surprised as well, because there's some great spots. So do you remember um, your first sponsor? Do you remember how you got your first sponsor, how that came around? I don't really remember exactly how I got it, but my first sponsor was uh, Gastra. And I think it was kind of through the kite school a little bit. My dad was working with a few different brands to get uh, gear for the school to teach on. But I remember they gave me a 10 meter Gastra GXR. That was like my kite. I could ride it in 20 knots, 10 knots. It didn't matter. That was the one kite I had. And at that time, Gastro was a big brand. There was Susie Mai was on the team, Gisela Polito, Sky Solback. There was, I mean, a lot of like big names um, from that time on the team. And uh, so that was my first sponsor. And then in 2005 or 2006, I went and switched to Nash. 
and I was with Nash from 2005 or 2006 till 2009. Um, and I remember actually seeing, I'd watch all the videos on kite form. And I remember seeing a video of you, I think it was on Hailing Island with that fat boy slim song, doing slims <laughs> yeah. and kite loop slims. And I was like, oh shit, there's another <laughs> Sam out there. Likewise, well, I remember seeing funny. videos of you thinking, check out this Sam in, in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, that's funny. Um, that's so, do funny. you did you like have? Did you always know that you wanted to go into the industry and, and be a, a pro kite boarder um, and make it your career? Like, do you remember kind of when you thought that? Like, how did you supplement, you know, that travel and stuff at the start? I guess all through high school, I didn't have anything that I was really interested in, and both my parents are uh, in education, so it was pretty tough to tell them like, hey, I don't. I don't want to go to university or college. I have no idea what I want to do. So I just kept following kind of my, my dream of just kiting and wanting to be a pro. Like even when I was like first getting into it, when I was really young, I was like, I want to be like Dan Trico. He was like the local board shaper. You know, I, I wanted to sand fiberglass and kiteboard as much as possible. Um, and then later on, I was, once I did some more events and whatnot, I wanted to be a pro kiter. and so as soon as I finished high school at 17 or 18, I, I went to Brazil and did my first you know, season in Brazil. And I feel like that at the time, a lot of people would do that. They would go and spend two, three months in Brazil and then go and, and do a big event after that. And uh, for me, I would teach kiteboarding at my dad's kite school. I'd work carpentry, doing construction, some odd jobs, doing renovations and stuff. And then uh, I would go and kind of kite wherever I could that was windy so Brazil was the first stop for me after graduating high school and that's kind of where I I guess I, I made my name in the industry starting out was um, going to Brazil and getting into the uh, the triple s that year in 2000 2009 and uh, and that kind of helped kickstart my career in North America and then uh, but I would still I mean at that time that year I switched to best and they started to help with travel and whatnot but I'd still go and teach kiteboarding almost every summer to help kind of supplement it and whatnot and uh yeah I didn't I didn't ever do a GoFundMe or anything like that so. <laughs> I'm sure being exposed to those like really big early events you know made a massive difference and you know inspired you and, and you could see the potential when you saw Aaron back in the you know early 2000 and, and whatever that must have been given you a lot of motivation to pursue it yeah definitely I think yeah seeing and also being from Canada it was like so far away everything it seemed like as far as like you know there were really no other professional kiteboarders from Canada um, everybody was European or from the states or wherever so it was uh yeah, to see them in person was like a dream come true. And, you know, as a kid, I'd watch every every kiteboarding film on VHS or DVD before going to school in the morning. You know, the first one's like High and The Power Zone. And then it was Awake and Unhooked and all those ones. And so it was pretty cool to finally get involved. And I remember like actually meeting everybody and getting to hang out with them at Triple S and some of the first events. It was pretty cool that you know, as you know, you look up to everybody and then all of a sudden you realize like, 
okay, they're, they're just a normal person that's just as stoked on this sport as I am. So that was pretty cool, but definitely motivating meeting them the first few times and, and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. And as you say, Triple S was, you know, where you really started to make your name. And I think a lot of the big, uh, you know, riders in North America established themselves at the Triple S because it was basically, you know, the nationals. It was, you know, one of the biggest events in the industry. Um, and that's when we all started to hang out, you know, wasn't it? It was probably about 10 years ago now almost. And we had such a good crew. I think that was what was so cool about it. Like we were all very similar, you know, and just motivated, loved the sport, but also kind of, I guess we saw the bigger picture as well. Um, you know, we were able to bring a lot of value to the sponsorship. And, and then that's when we started like bouncing ideas off each other and trying to do projects together. I remember our uh, trip to Brazil. Remember that, uh, that, that dark house <laughs> with no windows. <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy to think about. Uh, I guess I kind of look at it as well, like, you know, for yourself, you came competing on some of the world tour stops and whatnot, and then there's a lot of us from North America that didn't do a lot on the, on the world tour, but then we kind of all came together and collaborated. And that's where I think, you know, park really started to take off, but then also we all made our, you know, name in the industry from being a little bit different and not just, you know, following the competitive scene. And I think you see that in a lot of sports as well. Um, you know, snowboarding, there's the Mark McMorrises that are just going and following the world tour. And then there's the free riders that are going out and creating content and, you know, doing more travel stories and, um, you know, pushing themselves in different ways like that. And I think that's kind of where we started, what we started to do when we all started to, uh, to get together and travel more. Um, and it was cool to see, yeah, I guess riders like Aaron as well, right? Like step back from the competitive scene and start to do something similar. And um, yeah, I think it added a lot of value to the sport for sure. Yeah, it's, it's hard to sustain that, you know, competition, motivation. And also, you know, unless you're like winning the world tour, it's very hard to justify the cost um, against the value to your sponsors you know if you're really looking at it you know are you you know spending five grand to go to you know every event actually adds up super quick and unless you're winning it's not really worth it for the sponsors um, especially as it's more expensive trying to you know as most of the stops are in europe trying to get from north america to the peak ira in spain would have cost a fortune and if you didn't you know win then it was you know not worth doing it wasn't it so the triple s had so much media exposure and just it was such a cool way for us all to just kind of guess like the free ride crew meet more slightly more media driven um all kind of you know met at the triple s and that's where you know things started to flourish and we started to do the kite park league stuff and there was more events um and things like that yeah i think it definitely as well during all of that too I, I i think back to it and not only was the sport evolving and changing but also so was the world around us as far as how media worked right like we started you know think of the start of your kiting career you're watching most of the videos on vhs and dvd and then it was like they'd be out there on on vimeo or youtube and then all of a sudden instagram comes along and you know it really changed 
how we view media these days over the past, you know, 10 to 15 years. Like Facebook is what, 15, maybe 20 years old now? And uh, maybe 15 years, I guess. And then Instagram came along and it's, you know, you have that instant gratification of it right here in your hand, but it's also so easy to see the media. And I think that's, you know, all of us getting into that side of the sport creating content we we kind of struck it at the right time because i do think now it's there's so much content out there that it can be can be tougher for riders coming up through the ranks to get their content viewed over somebody else definitely yeah we were super lucky to be there right you know at the start of instagram and social media it's hard to even think that you know when we kind of first got sponsored and we're like doing events and stuff there wasn't social media you know for for many years yeah. we were putting out videos and, and content and there was no instagram and then we were lucky to be there from the start um I, I do often think that yeah for riders now it's so tough because the algorithms are so set up for you know it just snowboarding if you have more followers it's so much easier to get your content out there but which is why i think it's re you can still do it it's just harder because um, there is so much content out there, but it's still it's still possible. You just got to really find your niche, you know. Yeah, no, no, for sure. And I think that's also what's kind of beautiful about the sport. And you know, from the early days of kiting till now, there's so many disciplines within our sport, right? Like the foiling now is taken off like crazy. Whether you be racing on a foil or free riding on a foil and and all these different disciplines which i think is pretty appealing for for kiters you know because back in the day it was you know people were kind of following what was going on on the world tour you had two sides big air kind of wake style stuff and uh, now there's just so many different avenues for kiteboarding um, yeah and so many different ways riders can go exactly so do you remember like when you started to think about um you know moving into more of a sales role and trying to think about your future more was that always in the back of your mind or did that kind of happen you know naturally it was definitely always in the back of my mind um especially i think like most people you know they see their as they're getting older they see their friends you know like going to university and then all of a sudden your friends are graduating university and you're like ooh. You know, I've had a good few years here traveling and enjoying myself and following my dream, but you, that that definitely hit home a little bit as far as, um, yeah, as far as uh, my career was going. But then also, I think um, for me, I was with Best for, yeah, just shy of 10 years, and obviously they... Uh, they took a turn and uh, they weren't doing so well. They dropped a lot of their team and all of a sudden I was like, okay, I need to, you know, sustain myself and be able to make money. So I, um, I got more involved with the brand. I was originally doing more and more R and D with the designers, helping test products and give feedback. And then I took on a sales position with them. So that was kind of the start. And then, uh, after a year, two years of that, then I actually switched to Airrush and, and started to really grow with the brand there, um, doing sales. And then I've taken over now as a sales manager for the Americas for Airrush, which is uh, which is a pretty cool opportunity. But I guess I, I didn't really ever, I, I stumbled into it a little bit in the sense it was always, I wanted to stay involved in the industry. It's, it's all I know. It's, you know, been my, my passion my entire life. 
I wanted to stay connected to it. I wanted to stay connected to all my good friends through the sport. And uh, so naturally I got into sales. I didn't ever think I would be in sales. Um, I thought I was going to be a pro kiteboarder and just retire. But <laughs> that's I don't know. Like We always chatting about it, you know. Like we always got yeah. really well and chatted about it right from day one, you know. Like we're always very conscious of that. And I think we had similar upbringings. and. Sure you know, our parents and also friends, you know, like I had the same, like people are like, so what are you going to do like after Kaiti, you know, and it, and it does wear yeah. your mind because people like ask you that so much, you know, but you end up building a career within the industry and you have the contacts and, you know, it'd be a shame to throw mm -hmm. all of that away. And, and people in like the industry needs, you know, people like yourself that have the experience and know how far the, the equipment's come and you know how the marketing works. I think that is it's so valuable um, and the industry is growing so much. So there's still a huge amount of potential and it's so diverse, like you say, there's so many different disciplines now. Like if you really find what you like and you can harness that and, and choose the path that you wanna go down, there's a lot of opportunity, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of opportunity. And I think you said it right with, you know, the industry needs people like us. And I kind of look at it, you know, the generation before us, I look at what they're doing now within the kiting industry, you know, um, some of them are brand owners, some of them work as designers, some of them are shop owners. And I look at our generation now, and you see more of us getting further and further involved you know, yourself taking on a role with marketing and, and team manager with Slingshot, you know, Brandon working more uh, with Liquid Force doing development and whatnot, Craig's team manager at Duotone and, you know, Alex Fox's brand manager with Slingshot. So it's cool to see everybody, you know, we all started out together and it was all, you know, it was all our dream to, to kite. And we followed that and it was cool to see now kind of the next generation of riders coming up and we're still involved in the industry but just on uh, on a different kind of platform or a different side of the industry which is really cool and i think you know i don't think you could really go to school for some of the jobs that we're doing you you need the experience of being in the industry and understanding how it works and whatnot they don't have a, a university to kiteboarding yet so <laughs> uh, yeah that's it and you know we learn yeah, to make it work a lot I think of that's it's why experience we, that's why we're I'm, able to sustain it because somehow you know we we made it work because we wanted to pursue our passion and you learn so much um you know trying to make it work i think that's how yeah you, you learn so i felt like that you know it was just a natural progression you know doing the team manager stuff because i've figured out how to do it myself for you know more than 10 years so naturally it's like the other team riders start asking me like hey how do i do this how do you do that and it just makes sense you know because we've learned how to you know make a little bit of money go a long way and build a career and then you can go on and help other people but if you had you know someone had come out of university that had done a marketing degree and stepped into a, a team right a team manager role in a kite company it just wouldn't work you know like every industry and especially kite industry is so niche and specialist you really have to love it um so yeah we're, we're lucky like that we found our own own things that we enjoy yeah definitely definitely and i think i mean you see it in other industries as well right like different athletes from whatever it may be snowboarding they usually end up staying 
involved in their industry in some way, shape or form. And it's because you have that experience and that knowledge of that industry. And like you said, you can't just have, you know, it definitely helps to have a marketing degree, but you have to know that industry and know what works, what doesn't work. And that's really firsthand experience, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you end up buying your suite off the grid house in Canada? Like when did that start to to come into play? That's awesome. Um, I had, uh, I kind of always wanted to find a place to settle down in Canada, you know, and also, you know, I saw you get a place in the UK and more and more friends settling down. And then, um, I realized, okay, you know, I I love being Canadian. I love, uh, our country and everything that, uh, that we're fortunate to have here in Canada with education, healthcare, blah, blah, blah. So I was like, okay, Canada is the spot. And I had been coming to Squamish for years to do the Canadian nationals and the kite here in the summer. And so I had spent about uh, a full year here, winter and summer. And I was like, okay, I really like Squamish. And um, I ended up stumbling upon this house that was kind of in my price range. And it's way up a gravel road and middle of nowhere kind of thing but it was the right price and i went into the house i remember with the real estate agent it was freezing cold outside in uh it was january 5th or something and we walked inside and the house was almost as cold inside as it was outside and i was like i'll take it <laughs> <laughs> and then uh yeah so that the house is completely off grid it's a lot of work i mean heating it with uh solely a wood stove fireplace and creating your own electricity to charge the battery bank but it is rewarding and i really do enjoy it but um yeah it's definitely work yeah i mean it's, it must be great to have that place in a time like this you know you're the house is naturally isolated and, and you're off the grid so it must feel even even nicer up there now away from the madness <laughs> yeah no i definitely i feel fortunate to be where i am but there's a trade-off to everything there's also the convenience of being in the city and being able to bike into the supermarket or the shops and stuff like that uh i'm definitely isolated where i am and uh you know when things are normal it is sometimes tough to convince friends to come up because they're like oh you know you live way up there why don't you come into town we can go to the bar (laughs) we can go to restaurants here so there's always a trade-off but I, i do enjoy it i grew up pretty far up north in ontario and we had lots of property. We didn't have any neighbors nearby. So I'm kind of used to that. So um, yeah, it's, it's fun. But it is kind of funny, like the contrast between being on the road, traveling, kiting, and then I come home and it's very much different where I am. But uh, yeah. as long as I got an internet connection, I can keep working. <laughs> um, so what advice would you give to a young teenager you know that that has discovered kiting and and wants to make it their uh, career is there anything you've learned that you would want to pass on to them I think the biggest thing that I've learned and and I think if you look at a lot of the kiters who have done really well in their career is having the right attitude being really positive and you may not be the best rider at your beach but if you've got a good attitude and you're the most friendly guy at the beach, that goes a long way. And it's not always being, you know, the best rider on the water because a sponsor at the end of the day, they're using you as a marketing asset. And if you've got a bad attitude and you're not marketable, then you're not really worth a whole lot to a brand. So I think having a a really positive attitude 
and uh you know being that friendly awesome stoked guy at the beach goes a long way and then also um you know on the competition side or the riding side just being passionate about the sport kiting as much as you can and then also I tell this to younger riders and I'm sure you do as well but injury prevention you know staying fit off the water as well to to help prevent any injuries and uh always being ready for a session yeah you don't always take that seriously you know young enough I definitely tell a young myself that just because I definitely winged it for a number of years and it does catch up with you eventually doesn't it you know but we were lucky that we're able oh, to yeah. kite so much and, and you can as long as you can kite all the time you can get away with it but it's definitely worth trying to do other things as well isn't it yeah for sure and I think yeah I don't know it's funny I remember when I was younger you know the the older guys at the beach would be like oh you know you won't be you won't be young forever. You're going to start to, you know, feel pain and this and that. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Old guys. And then now I'm that older guy telling the young guys at the beach, like, Hey, you know, you should drink lots of water and stretch and do this and this. And so, yeah, it's kind of funny growing up that way, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, well, I mean, obviously a lot of things have been shut down this year, but is there anything you've got on the horizon that you're excited about? Things with Air Rush and, and trips, anything like that? We normally stay together in, in Cape Town. We've we've had a pad together for the last like five years, which is great fun. But who knows whether even that'll be happening now? You know. I know, I know. Well, normally this time of year we're we're getting our house all lined up for Hatteras and the Triple S. So yeah. Yeah, it's crazy what we're living through right now. I mean, this is something that I don't think the world's had to deal with for a long time you know closed borders and whatnot so it's scary i don't know where the next event will be or um, when that'll be but it sounds like the summer could be a bit of a write-off but um yeah i guess hopefully everybody gets back to health and uh maybe in the fall somewhere i don't know we'll see what happens but hopefully cape town for sure i mean that's 10 months away so i'd hope by then we're we're back to normal and uh yeah we'll be back out there so who knows unless we get a vaccine who knows man and uh are people still buying kites yeah. people are still buying kites we've got uh some new products coming out here in the next few months which i'm pretty excited about um yeah so that'll be that'll be pretty awesome and yeah it's kind of cool to see how the industry's gone you know back in the day each brand had you know one kite that was their you know kind of do it all it was like the nash torch back in the day right or the slingshot fuel um and uh now you know every brand's got a full range for every discipline of kiteboarding so it's uh it's kind of cool to see how that's been developing and whatnot and um yeah it's cool to to see how the market receives different products and how different products do in the market so yeah Lots of cool stuff happening. Cool. Exciting, man. Well, yeah, I look forward when we can finally do a, another trip together. And I was actually generally planning on coming to visit. And I've been saying it for years. I feel bad. <laughs> I still haven't come. But I'm going to come. I'm going to come. <laughs> one, one day. I know. Yeah, I know. I'll... One thing after another. But I'm coming. Well, when we're allowed. I don't know when I'll be allowed now. <laughs> yeah yeah well hopefully hopefully sooner than later and then 
Yeah, well, I'll, I'll be over in the UK for your wedding at some point. Yeah, who knows when that'll be. <laughs> <laughs> cool, man. Well, that about wraps it up. But thanks a lot for your time. It was cool to share that knowledge and history with, with everyone. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and I'll uh, link below all the, the videos and, and stuff we talked about. So make sure you check that out. But uh, thanks, guys. Cheers for watching and thanks for listening. Sick, awesome. Sam Badesky is a good dude. He shared a lot of very valuable knowledge and he's made a very good name for himself in the industry. So there's a lot of good points in there to take away. But yeah, as always, thank you so much for listening and watching. Subscribe if you're not already. Like the video. Drop me a comment who I should get on the show next. But yeah, thanks for tuning in. I'll see you in the next episode. Peace out.